This is Climate One. I'm Ariana Brocious. Developing countries are suffering the harms of the climate crisis first and worst, and they're least able to pay for their own transition to clean energy. From the developed countries should come the funding, and also we are exploring the resources from the private sector. Private sector money could play a big part in the clean energy transition, but too often, non-state actors like banks pledge to make their operations net zero while they continue to invest in fossil fuel extraction. We have clear recommendations demanding that non-state actors not only outline a target of net zero, but clear pathway to get there with interim targets. How can those in the developing world be empowered to direct money to where it will have the greatest impact? We are directing where that money should go because we know how these challenges should be dealt with. Funding the global energy transition, up next on Climate One. At this year's UN Climate Summit, COP27, one of the issues at the forefront of the conversation is loss and damage. The idea that rich countries, who have historically emitted the vast majority of climate-disrupting pollution, should have to pay for the resulting suffering borne by those least responsible for the problem. At the same time, the whole world needs to drastically reduce its emissions and transition to clean energy. And that costs money too. Even wealthy countries are struggling to meet self-imposed goals to cut down on carbon pollution. How can developing countries, who are already suffering the effects of the climate crisis, fund their own move to clean energy? Climate One has been at the COP27 summit talking with climate leaders. Bogolo Joy Kenawendo, UN Climate Change High-Level Champions Special Advisor, Africa Director, joined Greg Dalton to discuss how to rectify the great imbalances in money, power, and energy. So Africa's responsible for less than 4% of the planet's greenhouse gas emissions, while the G20 is responsible for 80%. Yet people in poor countries are already suffering climate impacts first and worst. So what impacts have you personally seen in Botswana? We have been experiencing quite shocking uh, um, uh, climate uh, changes uh, from uh, extreme drought to the next year having floods that uh, destroy the legacy infrastructure we've been working really hard to have. And uh, the droughts have caused hunger and uh, instability in food security. It's not that we've gone back to, uh, you know, a famine periods, but it is quite worrisome when, uh, you know, there is insecurity in, uh, in food production because that has ripple effects around inflation and the cost of living. Do people tie that to climate change? You know, for the most part, people do not uh, tie uh, changes. They will just say, oh, the weather has changed or the seasons have changed. And it is up to us to really uh, reinforce the message that things don't just happen. Uh, these are effects of uh, climate change. You are literally experiencing the shocks due to uh, the emissions around. And then how do you feel about that being inflicted by countries and corporations and individuals like me, honestly, far away. Well, you know, that has been such a strong conversation around uh, uh, with uh, civil society and private sector in the continent that if um, we've only contributed 4% of these emissions and we are the most vulnerable to shocks and the least um, capable to deal with adaptation and resilience, then we must be uh, compensated for this for these shocks and the loss that we're experiencing as a result. And you'll recall that now for the first time, we are talking about loss and damage here, uh, which essentially means we are losing so much of our infrastructure, our livelihoods because of these shocks that we didn't cause and we didn't even benefit from the emissions uh, that have caused this shock. So in order for us to really be able to build on um, sustainable development livelihoods, we need to find different ways for those that have benefited in these emissions to compensate those that don't, at least to build adaptation and resilience for the future. When we have those conversations with indigenous Americans in the United States who have been 
erased and all sorts of terrible things done to them. They don't like to be seen as victims. They want justice, but they don't want to be seen as perpetual victims. Right. How, do you, how do you thread that? I really like uh, the way you're framing it because it's a similar conversation here. It's not about, oh, we are victims. We recognize we contributed less to emissions. But we also see that there are a lot of opportunities uh, in this space. But one thing that we have seen in particular this year is a lot of non-state actors who are African coming up with solutions to the problem. And this week alone, we've had private sector from the continent committing to about three different initiatives. And if I may just take you through those. Uh, one is around uh, the insurance sector, recognizing that doing business in a climate vulnerable environment will um, make investors very skittish. So the insurance industry has recognized their role as um, uh, risk managers, risk carriers, and investors. And they have made a commitment of a $2 billion Africa climate risk facility that should be able to transfer loss and risk of $14 billion uh, for the most vulnerable uh, African populations through sustainable and market-led insurance uh, products. And uh, uh, cumulatively, this should cover about 1.4 billion people or translates to about 140 million people per year. So these kind of initiatives, they are showing that Africans recognize the challenge that uh, we are facing and are positioning themselves with uh, proper solutions and are then calling the world to add, cooperate, and contribute to the solutions that we're coming with. Instead of just saying, you know, you caused this problem, now pay us. But we are directing where that money should go because we know how these challenges should be dealt with. And I particularly really um, enjoyed those kind of interventions. And another one is over 60 of Africa's biggest businesses, African-owned big, biggest businesses, they made some serious commitments as well around, uh, they now call themselves the African Business Leaders uh, Coalition, and they made um, some commitments. They released a strong statement saying uh, that they are going to uh, commit to key actions on meeting goals of the Paris Agreement, and uh, they will be uh, uh, supporting Africa's just transition towards a 1.5 degree future, and they are committing to building a thriving continent that is rooted in resilient green and competitive economy. And when you look at it, they are speaking to also uh, investing in human capital, uh, young people, and ensuring that future generations are able to live in um, adaptive and resilient environments. And once again, they are saying we are getting started. The world can join us. That's exciting because we know that uh, governments don't have enough money and it's hard to get money out of governments. Yeah. And this is the financial markets and private sector stepping up. You know, here at COP27 in Egypt, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry announced a new platform for carbon credit trading, calling it the Energy Transition Accelerator. The idea is that multinationals, corporations would be able to offset their own emissions by paying for developing countries to develop renewable energy. What do you think of that plan? Yeah, I think when we heard Senator Kerry announce this, it was right after we announced the Africa Carbon Market Initiative, which was supported by President Ruto of uh, Kenya and uh, uh, President Chequera of Malawi and Bongo of uh, Gabon. And we specifically started the African Carbon Market Initiative to value and commercialize the nature-based assets that we already have that are providing lands to the world. And yet the communities there are not seeing the real value in monetary terms of protecting those nature assets. And so- um, It's not know, trickling down to the people who need it It's not trickling down to, to the people. Or really, uh, at the moment, uh, carbon markets, they do not value nature-based solutions the right way. 
the main issue with uh, nature-based solutions and uh, them in voluntary carbon markets is that the pricing at the moment is somewhere between five and ten dollars, and a, we a ton. A, a ton, and and we know that um, in mandatory markets in Europe, in uh, the U.S. and in Asia, uh, uh, carbon pricing per ton can easily go for a hundred dollars. So we're saying for the nature-based credits, we should be getting value above $10 because it is more than just a sequestration by forests. is the biodiversity that keeps the ecosystem running. And that is something that pricing and valuing uh, nature-based uh, uh, carbon credits should take into account. And what we've uh, said in response to uh, Senator Kerry and everybody is Anyone who wants to partner in delivering in the mandate of ACME can do so. And we particularly want to uh, the consideration of preferential pricing uh, in the U.S. for African nature-based carbon uh, credits. But most importantly, we want the integrity piece around carbon markets to be prioritized. So whoever wants to buy African carbon credits should recognize that them just trading in uh, African carbon markets is not, them, uh, it's not the final solution. They have to have other net zero commitments. They must be working on reducing their emissions because um, just buying the credits isn't enough. And so you're saying that the carbon credits are underpriced, and yet I've been hearing a lot here in other situations where the, uh, loans to African energy projects are charged higher interest rates. Yes. So in some cases, there's lower lower pricing on credits, higher pricing on, on interest Absolutely. loans uh, to Africa. So how is that affecting Africa's ability to deploy clean energy? Because the price of clean energy is going down, 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 but the, the access to capital and financing seems to be an obstacle for Africa. Do you know, it's very interesting. Everyone keeps saying the price of clean energy is going down. That uh, reduction hasn't necessarily been transferred into the continent. It is still quite expensive uh, to venture into clean energy projects in the continent. And it's because there's still this uh, perception risk premium that is associated with investing in the continent. They don't think they're going to get their money back. Yes. But we have evidence that shows that default rates for infrastructure financing the, in the continent is still in double digits, while in other markets, it's double digits. So what's going on there? Some kind of bias? So it's a bias. Um, it's a bias that exists in the market. And I think it's because people haven't taken the time to learn and understand the African market. And this is one of the things that we are encouraging through. We've been having regional... Um, uh, regional forums to really sensitize investors on what it is like investing in the continent, what are the financial instruments that have worked, that, uh, um, that de-risk doing business in the continent, and what other uh, partners are available in the continent that can help them really deploy capital better. And we've done that and we are now working on, um, on an Africa uh, sector of GFANS in order to... Financial so the Global Alliance. Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Thank you. Um, for those members to connect with African financial um, uh, industry and to have them communicate better about what the opportunities are, what the real risks are of investing in the continent, but most importantly, the opportunities that exist and how those can be tapped. You've been a champion for Africa-led solutions. How should Africa go about developing local capacity so that jobs and profits from the energy transition remain in Africa? Well, I think first it's about how the continent positions itself. Many African countries would position themselves one is be very clear about what the projects are and how much the projects need in order to be able to channel the right kind of capital into those projects. So that has been one. And then secondly, capacity building is a key issue. So we are going to have to also invest in the development of human capital in understanding what building a green development pathway looks like, but most importantly, build human capital that will recognize and position the continent to benefit more from this green financial infrastructure.
When I spoke with Wanjira Mataya, WRI's Africa director, she said most of Africa's trade is with Europe and Asia, that only 15% of trade happens within African countries, and that African nations need to get better at trading with each other in order to build prosperity. As an economist and former minister of investment trade and industry at Botswana, how do you think Africa gets there? So we have made good strides in terms of uh, policy and negotiation around the Africa free trade uh, continental area. And um, the good strides that have been made to enable the trade of goods uh, started uh, implementation during COVID, unfortunately. It was uh, the 1st of January, 2020. But two weeks ago, we managed once again to reach an agreement around the protocol on investment. Now, this one is one that is very important because trading of goods is easy. It is attracting and uh, retaining investment that is a big issue. And reaching an agreement on the protocol of investment will create more credibility in investing in the continent. It will ensure that we are able to speak to the same kind of standards around uh, investment in the continent and should be able to say to investors that um, you are protected when you invest alongside the AFCFTA. One of your many roles has been a member of the G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council. How can empowering women help address the climate crisis? Women are most affected and most vulnerable to uh, climate shocks. When we invest or have gender lens investing towards women, we are tackling directly issues of inequality, of poverty, and building adaptation and resilience. So in order for us to really say we are dealing with gender issues or women issues, we must ensure that our recovery policies, for one, speak directly and have KPIs that are gender- Keep progress uh, indicators. Yes, yeah. keep progress indicators that are directly linked to um, success or progress around women. And we believe that particularly for adaptation and resilience. If we are looking at uh, access to water, we are looking at uh, access to markets, building roads that provide access to markets, we will create an enabling environment for women to be active uh, participants in the economy. Not just active, but very efficient participants in the economy. Thank you very much for coming on Climate One. It's an honor to talk with you today. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Coming up, how can we hold non-state actors to account for their net zero pledges? We are arguing that if you are voluntarily declaring a net zero target as a non-state actor, then you have to also adhere to the highest principles of highest environmental integrity. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Mariana Brocious. Net zero pledges have been a headline grabber for many companies and organizations, a way to signal awareness of the public's increasing concern about the climate crisis. But how do we know that those pledges will actually have any real effect on reducing emissions? Arunaba Ghosh is CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. He's a member of a UN task force focused on this question and spoke with Climate One host Greg Dalton about their recent report. This report is by the independent high-level expert group on the net zero commitments of non-state actors uh, set up by the UN Secretary General on the 1st of April. Um, we were given a very clear task to think about the principles and the recommendations that avoid greenwashing by corporations or by cities and regions that are committing to net zero, uh, but not always delivering. And we wanted to make sure that the, the, there are clear recommendations that are implementable by the non-state actors in order to separate the, the sincere and the committed uh, from those who are um, merely making statements or grabbing headlines. In this, recommend, in this report, we have clear recommendations demanding that non-state actors not only outline a target of net zero, but clear pathway to get there with interim targets, which can be held to account, which can be independently verified and monitored, and that they make sure that the reductions in their emissions happen by their own actions rather than buying up low quality cheap credits elsewhere. At the same time, we strongly nudge the non-state actors to look at using high quality 
uh, credits to invest in the developing world, to look at investment opportunities in the global south where the sustainable infrastructure is needed, where people are most vulnerable to a changing climate, uh, and where the cost of finance is significantly higher than in, in the rich world. So if we can combine these two strands, then we actually are able to demonstrate that a net zero commitment translates into action and translates into just outcomes for the majority of the world's people. A fellow member of this commission just said to me that the Secretary General is furious that the large banks are saying we're going to go net zero while they're still sending massive amounts of loans and capital to further extraction of fossil fuels. Is that right? We have made a very clear recommendation in the report that financial institutions have to immediately start phasing down from, from uh, re removing their investments from fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and then we have a differentiation for when they are able to extract that out of, uh, from OECD countries, which is by 2030, and by 2040 for, for non-OECD countries. But there has to be a clear pathway towards ending financing of uh, fossil fuel infrastructure and, and extract new extraction activities, which then locks us in into a much more unsustainable pathway for the decades ahead. But these banks answer to their shareholders. They don't typically listen to the UN for how to run their business. How, do you think they will listen? Because climate, climate risk is now facing us all. Uh, for the longest time, we've assumed that the poor will adapt and the rich will escape. Uh, but if 2022... Is, serves any lesson, it is that extreme heat, extreme weather events is impacting us all. And therefore, financial institutions must also have a fiduciary responsibility to the integrity of the assets in which they're in investing. Sounds like you're after uh, the social license to operate. It is not just the social license to operate, it is also the, the, the risk of financially stranded assets. If they are going to start invest, continuing to invest in fossil fuel infrastructure or in infrastructure that is unsustainable or that does not take into account climate risks or that they don't declare the, their exposure to, to climate-impacted assets, then they're not actually fulfilling their responsibilities to their shareholders. They're not actually preserving shareholder value. Last question is, it was interesting to note that you called for full disclosure of lobbying because companies oftentimes tell us one thing on TV ads and then another thing happens in the corridors of power. So how important is that going to be? What are you trying to accomplish by calling for disclosure of lobbying? I think it's very important to recognize that if you're going to say something, then you actually mean it. And that you don't say something in public and in private, you lobby for something, which is the polar opposite. And this is why we are, uh, we are arguing that if you are voluntarily declaring a net zero target as a non-state actor, then you have to also adhere to the highest principles of highest environmental integrity. Of course, in your respective jurisdictions, there might be regulatory reasons why you have to declare a net zero target, and those regulatory uh, directives will be determined by the governments. But you cannot voluntarily declare net zero and then lobby those same governments in the jurisdictions where you're operating for slightly lax regulations or to carry on you know, uh, with business as usual. Either do what you say or don't say it at all. Doctor, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Arunaba Ghosh is CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. To continue this conversation related to net zero pledges made by non-state actors, Greg Dalton met up with Alastair Marsh, a reporter at Bloomberg. Hundreds of companies have jumped on the net zero bandwagon with all kinds of goals and pledges and promises. Yesterday, we heard the secretary general say, um, quote, using bogus net zero pledges to cover up massive fossil fuel expansion is reprehensible. It's rank deception. The toxic cover up could push our world over the climate cliff. What did you think when you heard the Secretary General say those words? Well, he has some very eloquent lines. He was quoting, well, I'm not sure if he was quoting directly ACDC, but he did say that we were on a highway to hell, <laughs> which, which uh, made me smile in a dark kind of way, just as I like that song. But um, <laughs> he's, he's right. I mean, the, the whole uh, net zero has become a I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of a, a simple idea that you eliminate your emissions as much as you can, and then you'll offset the the residual, or you'll do something with the re residual, but it's become a sort of, if, you could, if you'll excuse the phrase, a bandwagon that everyone's jumped on without really thinking through what it means. 
or without really wanting to explain it. You just think about the consequences for their operations or their relationships with their customers and should they even have some of those relationships if they're going to really deliver on those targets. And so it becomes easy to say, hard to deliver on. I guess with all, all everything that's discussed at COP, it's easy to say, hard to deliver on. But this is sort of a corporate world. Well, actually, there have been some governments who've made net zero commitments too, but it's been really adopted by corporates. And there's a lot of, uh, I always use the word greenwash, if you'd allow me, but let's this, this just call it uh, hot air or unsubstantiated claims. Things that, again, easy to say, hard to deliver upon. Right, and, and you know, a few years ago, very few companies had net zero pledges, yes. and now even ExxonMobil has a net zero right, pledge. It right. seems like it's become this sort of fad. There's a new UN report out released here at this COP27 that lays out a 10-point plan to end greenwashing, or yes. um, let's use that term. It includes companies issuing public plans, setting interim targets, yeah. yearly public reporting on their progress, and disclosure of lobbying activities. What impact do you think all this will have on corporate net zero pledges? Well, uh, to answer that, in the most direct way, it depends if it gets regulated or not. Like at the moment, this whole thing is voluntary. So it's easy to make the claim without any kind of punishment for not delivering upon it. Right, it's a lot of, so, hence the greenwashing. Like yes, it's companies, exactly. it's because it's not really, usually corporate America doesn't take its charges right. from the UN. Right, but at COP, it seems like there are lots of themes that get spoken about in all kinds of corners, but whether they actually get latched on and developed and delivered sure. upon is another thing. But one, one of the themes I hear a lot of heard so far is around from voluntary to mandatory, certainly on kind of, uh, on the delivery of net zero. If we're actually going to deliver on this thing, we need to kind of put the incentives in place and the kind of enforcement structures to make it happen. Otherwise, it just becomes, it's easy to greenwash. It's just too easy to greenwash. So, um, yeah, the, the Catherine McKenna's report was all about delivery. And I get the... Uh, go, she would just say she's the former environment minister of Canada, former yes. minister of parliament in Canada who chaired this report. Yeah. And it included a bunch of regulators and former regulators from around the world. And they're saying this is what should happen. Exactly. And I was going to say that the point there about interim targets is is important. So there's the man making it mandatory in some way, but, but also the interim bit, because the, all of the um, net zero targets are 2050, when most current management will be long, long retired. Uh, it's just too far in the future to be realistic or to, to be uh, tangible, let's put it that way. So if you have a 2025 target or a 2030 target, well, that's something that you can think about, okay, the next three years, what do I need to do? What would it look like to get my, my business on a pathway aligned with Paris? And of course, this is the this is supposed to be the decade of delivery, like the decade of action, as they call it, where you ha we're supposed to, according to the science, reduce emissions by half. So to get on the path to net zero, it's uh, cut emissions by half by 2030, and then the rest in the next 20 years. So we should be seeing a lot more, we could be a lot more aggressive now, let's put it and that that's way. And just, that's just the kind of basic things that are taught in business school, right? Is to have kind of key progress indicators. Right, that, yeah, that's yeah, the way, exactly. yeah. why shouldn't corporations run their carbon commitments the way they run everything, making yes, cereal and making yes. widgets and everything else, right? Yeah, and the, the report also goes after some of the more kind of nefarious stuff like, um, Funding, uh, so, you know, funding uh, kind of anti-climate lobby groups, so that that kind of, or, you know, having that your lobbying should be aligned with your climate goals, and not to be on the one hand saying yes we're green, but on the other hand actually lobbying for things that are, are you know contrary to that. Another thing that's interesting in the report that goes back to motivation and how you kind of incentivize or force people to do what's needed on net zero is that they, uh, they they recommend that net zero targets focus on absolute emissions reductions, not carbon intensity. Carbon intensity being car carbon per unit of output. Yes, mm -hmm. which climate activists have pointed out that your carbon intensity target can actually look good, but at the same time, you you can be in, you can hit that target and also increase fossil fuel production or usage of fossil fuels or financing of fossil fuels in the case of investors. So that's another slightly niche point, but it all comes back to the point of we need to kind of get rid of all the excuses and the uh, 
loopholes in the system, essentially. Right, because they're, they're very clever at finding those. Yes. About 80% of the global economy is now under the goal of net zero emissions. This group of high-level experts convened by the UN says it's now time to focus on the quality and implementation right. plans. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you personally, this is your beat for Bloomberg, how do you personally look at these net zero plans and what kind of personal sniff test do you have or how, how do you judge yourself? Well, I guess the first obvious sniff test is who is this company and what do I know them about them already? I mean, let's take a big oil. We've seen several oil majors make net zero commitments. Well, that smells bad just, just on the face of it. I mean, some would argue that they have in some ways the technical resources, they have the balance sheet to kind of deliver on ambitious decarbonization, yet at the same time it kind of runs against their economic modus operandi and just their, their general kind of way of being for the last 80 years or however long. That doesn't mean that they can't do it, but it just it, it requires not, you, extra there, degree of scrutiny and sort of skepticism. Right, because there's not trust in the brand yes. and, the, and the story. Yes. And the same rings true in finance, which is where, actually where I spend more of my time looking at banks, asset managers, pension funds, and their net zero commitments. And they are in some ways one step removed from the real economy in that they are a kind of, Mark Carney, a big name in climate finance, likes to say that finance is an enabler, a, a catalyst. It's, it's not in itself responsible in some ways for emissions. It just enables them. They're funding the oil wells. They're not drilling the oil wells. Right, exactly. But the even in my coverage of that space, you can tell... Um, you, you can tell quite easily like which banks are the most serious and which banks are not, for, for example, based on the statements of the CEOs, the kind of the, the seniority of their sustainability people, the, the credibility and uh, detail of their targets around So who's climate. on uh, Alistair's, uh, <laughs> who's on Alistair's list of uh, the good list and naughty list? Well, I probably shouldn't name names or I'd get in trouble, but I might I might give a uh, geographic uh, breakdown, or by which I simply mean, and this is easy for me to say as a Brit, but the, the, the Americans and the Canadians are, would be on my naughty list. But that might be just it's simply a function of, this all boils down to fossil fuel finance and the historic relationships that have been built up with big, big oil, basically, or with... Um, the big polluters. Well, certainly J.P. Morgan Chase is known to have yes. loaned hundreds of billions Wells of Fargo, dollars Bank of America, to uh, fossil fuel interests since you know Paris, yes. and, and that's I think what the Secretary General was calling out right. from these banks, saying we're going to be green. Oh, and we're going to continue to loan billions of dollars to extracting exactly. more fossil fuels, which the International Energy Agency says we don't need more fossil yeah. fuel extraction. Now, uh, the the kind of counter argument to that is that we do that even in a even in the IEA's net zero uh, net zero by 2050 scenario, there is still fossil fuels. It's not like they disappear altogether. It's just that we would only need money to kind of not. It's not for new extraction. It's to maintain existing facilities. Not searching for new stuff yes. to dig out of the ground. There's enough on the balance sheets already exactly. to, to to fry us. And all. on the flip side, we should be massively ramping up investment and finance to renewables. So the banks are trying to kind of, what, what I heard of this UN push was trying to, the banks are trying to kind of have it both ways. Yes. <laughs> Keep lending to fossil fuels, get green cred for their consumers and probably their employees. Yes, and the UN correct. is coming in here saying, whoa, 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 yeah, this, well, we see kind of a shell game going on here and they're trying to pressure the banks to kind of yeah, it's, it's have your cake and eat it. I mean, there, there's a lot of money to be made in the energy transition and in financing green things. You know, it's interesting that JP Morgan, at least uh, the most recent data I've seen, they've both been, you know, since Paris, as you said, they are the biggest financer of fossil fuels. But they're also, in the last few years, they've been either number one or near the top of the underwriters for green bonds. So they see sort of you know, they're, they're in the money business and there's money in oil, but there's also now money in renewables. And I guess it then becomes what are the incentives and how can they be pushed to 
you know, flip all of their emphasis or as much as, as much as is sort of scientifically prudent or in line with what science suggests around climate um, to the green side. You've, you've written that many corporations are so afraid of being called out for greenwashing, they're now keeping their emission reduction plan secret, a phenomenon called green hushing, which I had never heard of before I read your article. What impact is that having on corporate pledges? I talked to some corporate people who, who I have some sympathy for who think whatever we do is never going to be good enough. Yeah, There's always right, going to be some right. enviro out there banging on us to do more. I can I have some sympathy for that perspective. You know, I said at the beginning that I focus a lot on finance. And just a few years ago, uh, banks, asset managers, big investment firms were almost not considered really by climate activists. They were protesting outside Exxon and things like this, but they there was no one outside JP Morgan's office or BlackRock, for example. But actually, that's really changed in the last couple of years as people have realized more and more that banks are the so-called money pipeline behind the oil pipeline, i.e. there would be no there would be no oil pipeline without the money that comes from JP Morgan or Wells Fargo or HSBC or yeah. you know, any of these banks. So you, you've seen in recent times uh, pressure on uh, Larry Fink. You had protesters trading him for a period you've had um, in London, you've had Extinction Rebellion smashing windows at JP Morgan at HSBC, you've seen green paint th thrown all over Lloyds of London, the insurer to uh, symbolize that they're greenwashing. And so in that environment, in that climate, yes, there's going to be a reticence to publicly say, to kind of over-promise and under-deliver, which is what you've, you've had in the past. It was easy previously to just kind of come out there without anyone really criticizing you. That, that table was a really turn there now. So speaking of, you know, capitalists, uh, I'm curious, you know, you work for uh, one of the most uh, successful visible capitalists. <laughs> um, and yet, do you ever yourself, you know, have doubts about capitalism solving this? You know, they're playing the game by the rules that maybe they've written the rules. Yeah. But do you ever have personal doubts about where the capitalism itself that we're kind of all this stuff is kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? I do, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been on the sustainable investing climate team at Bloomberg for three or so years now. I think over that time I've become increasingly cynical. I mean, maybe I'm just becoming a grumpy old man, I'm, possibly, but it just seems like the more you uh, speak with people in finance, now, there are some very good, committed people in the finance industry who care deeply about these issues and are working hard on them. But there are also a lot of people who really, yes, they acknowledge climate change is real. Yes, it may affect future generations. Yes, maybe it's happening a little bit now, but let's not talk about that. But they're, they're not really, like it hasn't clicked in their head that like their day-to-day -day activity is exacerbating it making it worse, or if it has, it hasn't bothered them enough to do something about it. And so the sort of the capitalist impulse to kind of money, 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 uh, well, certainly it doesn't work for everyone as we're talking about here in this COP where, you know, uh, Egypt, Africa, uh, the emerging economies are gonna pay a much heavier toll. So there's that aspect. But even for those sort of self-interested Western financiers in the long run, you know, the money, train from fossil fuels is going to dry up and the kind of the physical impacts of climate change are going to be economically speaking let alone you know human speaking humanly speaking incredibly damaging so you kind of outlined the people who dismiss you know climate change i worry more uh, also about people who are sincere in the sustainability field but aren't courageous enough to ask themselves and others the real systemic deep questions. Like, are we fooling ourselves that this system, we are in a car going toward a cliff and we're trying to, you know, tighten a few bolts inside the car, but the car is still going toward the cliff. And we don't really want to, we kind of know the cliff is there, but we don't want to admit it to ourselves yeah. that it's there. Well, I, th I think the people that care most deeply about sustainability and climate within let's say, banks or investment houses, are usually not in charge, let's put it that way. As, as in, I think a lot of CEOs have come to understand that, that it's in, you know, that it's something that they need to be cognizant of and that, you know, climate change will have impacts on their business. But I think those who care most deeply about it and would love to kind of reorientate or, you know, restructure the way the thing operates so as to be, you know, more in line with the kind of the science, are usually are not in positions of, of power, which I think is, is, is problematic in some ways. 
Well, thank you, Alistair, for, for your sharing your sights. Alistair Marsh is a reporter from Bloomberg. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up, how have Indigenous communities been represented in climate negotiations? It's 23 years that we've been uh, saying to the government that we, we could also contribute the way we are here to, to help for climate action. That's up next when Climate One continues. Johnson Cerda is an indigenous Quechua of the Ecuadorian Amazon and a senior director at Conservation International. He joined Greg Dalton for a conversation at COP27. We often hear that indigenous people are stewards of much of the biodiversity, much of the land to be protected, are really significant players and can offer a lot for climate solutions. But does that translate to being recognized and heard when it comes to a big event like this? Well, it hasn't been easy because we came in 98, in 2000 as a group in order to say that we have something to contribute. But the, the government, they didn't open the door until 2007 when they included the first wording in terms of indigenous people's participation. I just came from a meeting uh, this morning where we, we, we had to say that we are here, we want to contribute, and we have knowledge. And I see that we have opportunities. Uh, it's sometimes it's becoming very technical, and, and we need to also elevate our capacity as, as indigenous peoples in terms to document the information and bring evidence, because we, have, we are orals and we have information. We have, as I said, knowledge, but we need to also bring some data for, for the discussion here. So what I think I heard there is gradual progress being listened to more, but still indigenous countries, for example, in the United States, Navajo Nation and other indigenous groups, when they deal with the federal government, it's sovereign to sovereign, right? But here under the United Nations, Navajo Nation doesn't have standing. It's not a, it's not a member state, so to speak. So they're under the U.S. delegation. That's true for all the other indigenous people. They're under the nation state. So that, does that put them in the shadows? Well, yeah, yeah, that is, that is an important uh, a concern that we have because at the United Nations uh, level, what we are trying to get is perhaps the we call it enhanced participation of indigenous peoples. Actually, a dialogue is happening around that because, as you said, there are countries where indigenous peoples they have treaties with the governments, but most of the countries, at least in developing countries where I come from in Ecuador, uh, yeah, we are under the you know the the shadow, as you said of the governments. And that is something difficult because what we wanted to have here in this uh, convention is to have a dialogue perhaps at the same level. That's our goal. That's our goal. Because we said that we can contribute, but that's why we want to have the, a conversation at the same level. But um, there's, you know, they, there's opposition for that. Still, uh, discrimination is, is there. Uh, but we have countries where we are recognized but not given opportunities to contribute mainly. But also there are cases where, you know, we have countries with good legislation of indigenous peoples, but, but still the governments are affecting our rights, our land, our territories. So at, at this level, let's say at the beginning in the negotiation, we've been refusing to be part of the government delegations, to be honest because we thought that they are like our enemies because they are making decisions against our interests as indigenous peoples. So be, we've been refusing for a long time, but I see lately that we are part of the government. They've been a bit open in terms of coming here, for instance, myself in the delegation of Ecuador, you know, and many other colleagues in several delegations, even from Canada, I see some indigenous colleagues in the U.S. delegation. We are perhaps being part of that, and, and trying, uh, trying to open the door and put our ideas in their own statements before they you know, present here in the negotiation. So we feel like it's been changing a bit, right? Uh, and it takes time, it takes time. For us, it's been a long journey. I'm saying that we started in 2000, it's 23 years that we've been uh, saying to the governments that we, we could also contribute the way we are here to, to help for climate action. And, and I see a bit, you know, doors open, but it's not enough. Indigenous people manage much of the forest land around the world. What do you see as an effective way to uh, support their efforts to preserve those ancestral lands that are very important for sequestering carbon and for people who live far away? 
Yeah, for us, it's not only to sequester the carbon, it's, for, it's our life, right? Cultural, the, our, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's the way we are living using the forest because we, we've been living for a long time like that. But it happens that now it's important, the carbon, for... White people suddenly care about it because exactly. they think it matters to them. Exactly. <laughs> and, and now, you know, sometimes the government, they want to teach us how to protect the forest. We said, we've been protecting <laughs> for a long time and, and we should come to learn from us, right? right? Yeah, it's important, but I think the lesson learned in the experience that I have with that dedicated grant mechanism for indigenous peoples and local communities, uh, you know, the, the idea is to have for indigenous peoples direct access to the fund, to the climate funds. So having this fund, for instance, let me put just an example in Peru. In order to get a land title in Peru, it, it used to take for about 15, 20, sometimes 30 years because of the bureaucratic process in the government. Even having funding, sometimes the government, they don't reach there after that many years, 20 years. But now having funding directly, in, in the case of Peru, in one year, and perhaps the latest one, I mean, the, the longest one is like two years. They're having the, their land title because they have received directly the funding and they are inviting the governments to come to the communities to make the reports that they need to make. And then in two years, they are having their, their land title. So that means the participation of indigenous peoples. And if they have access to the resources, they can also, you know, secure the land and continue contributing with the conservation of forests, as a carbon stock, right, for, for, for the interests of everybody. So I think it's important that we need to recognize that indigenous peoples need to receive the funding directly in order to continue contributing. And where do you think that funding can come from? What are the sources of that funding? Well, in, in general, you know, the commitment that the governments have, like... The $100 billion. Dollars, yeah, yeah, exactly, that they have to contribute for developing countries. That's one source. But... As everybody is saying also in the convention, uh, they should bring additional funding for climate action and not just from, from the, you know, this funding that they have for uh, developing countries already set up for some time. So new funding, we don't see is coming. You know, the commitment the governments made in 2009 about the hundred billion dollars starting in 2020. Per year. We don't see that <laughs> is happening. We yeah. are in, 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 in 2022 ending the year, we don't see that happening. That's why I agree with the you know, government saying that this needs to be for implementation. We have a lot of communities. Why we don't start implementing and, and allocating the funding? And I, I see, you know, from the develop, developed countries should come the funding. And also we are exploring the, you know, the resources from the private sector. What's your personal journey here on Climate One? We like to connect the systems and the individuals. You've told us a little bit, but what's been your personal journey um, as a climate advocate? First of all, since I come an indigenous community in the Amazon, my life was in the community, or I was in my house in charge of uh, going for fishing and provide you know, the food for the family. That was part of my work, given since I was like six years old or seven years old. I had to do that for the family. So I, I am very closely related with, with nature. In general, indigenous, we are really, uh, very connected with nature, but I was deeply connected because I used to go every day, birds, every day, the, the wildlife, every day bringing some fish. Uh, so I am, I'm really connected with that. And what I see is that climate change is impacting that kind of life that we, we had in the community. And also I see that, uh, for instance, because of climate change, parts of the forests are getting dry, and we see that clearly in the wildlife. For instance, monkeys, uh, the wild, wild, wild birds, or any kind of animals, they go close to where they can find uh, water. And sometimes now it's easier to hunt them because they are not deep in the forest, they are close where they find the water. So the hunters they know now is, is very easy, and when it, it is too dry, it's easy to identify when the animal is coming in the rainforest. Because, you know, it's, it's, the forest is, you, you can see too, so far, but you can hear that they are coming because of the, the leaves and the ground and they are dry. 
and easy for them to hunt. And so things are changing. Well, it's one thing to notice changes. It's another to gain confidence as a fisherman in an indigenous community to speak up. So is what's driving you, is it fear about what you're going to lose? Is it excitement about what you can share? Is it anger at what's happening? Well, yeah, uh, anger in one side because it's affecting too much in some regions, um, but also thinking in the opportunities that we could have in order to, to share. Here in the negotiations of climate negotiations, many times they open opportunities to contribute, for instance, in adaptation, on, on mitigation, but we don't have resources to do our own research. And we don't see people giving resources to make research and come up with some evidence here. And, and we do what, what we can in order to contribute, but we are still expecting that. So we use all of this in order to say that, um, you know, in order to provide capacity building for our, our colleagues coming to participate here, perhaps colleagues that are mostly affected by climate change because we have, you know, areas where they are mostly affected. So what's it like we're sitting here at this conference with thousands of people from all over the world with all sorts of languages and dress, et cetera, many indigenous people. What's it like for you being here right now? Well, uh, f for me, it's a bit perhaps easier because I have experience here, in, mm -hmm. you know, many years of experience, and I at least can speak English and it's mm. easy to communicate. Mm -hmm. But we have most of the delegations with just one language. But also we have people from, you know, Communities, perhaps they don't speak very well, even Spanish, and being here in this space is unfair for them. So what we do is also we use resources in order to provide interpretation for them, to make fair participation for them and listen what's going on here. Yeah, it is challenging, but also opportunity to network with uh, different institutions here and, and companies uh, in order to share our concerns that we have. And, and yeah, you know, network with also governments. I, I, I've been participating in a couple of events here uh, with some governments and we express our concerns that we have uh, in terms of um, participation, funding needs, human rights issues, land tenure, you know, importance for communities. So sharing our concerns here. Well, thank you very much, Johnson, for sharing your thoughts with us on being here at uh, COP27 in Egypt. Thank you. Thank you very much. This wraps up our on-the-ground COP27 coverage as our team returns to the U.S. If you missed last week's COP episode on loss and damage, find it and all of our episodes in our podcast feed. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or a review if you're listening on Apple. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. Greg Dalton is Climate One's host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Austin Colon and me, Ariana Brocious. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. Thanks for listening.